One, two, one, two. Now here we go. You know what time it is? Welcome to another episode of the Frankie Lee Podcast. Our mission to empower others to break patterns, flip perspectives, so that together we have clarity, direction, and success way beyond what we ever previously thought possible. Here's your host, Frankie Lee. Welcome back to the Frankie Lee Podcast. Now today, guys, this episode is slightly different to any other episodes that I've done because it's not something that I would normally delve into, but I feel that in the environment that we're currently living in in Australia, in the narrative that's currently being played out, that it's really, really important that I give the other side, the other perspective to the narrative. I really I really believe that I want to be on the right side of history um, and I, and. When you heard the intro to this podcast, it said break patterns and flip perspectives. Part of being a critical thinker in this world is understanding and listening to all sides of all stories and then making an informed decision predicated on all the information that you have at hand. Australia is a country that gave me citizenship. It's changed my fucking life. I love this country. I want to read you something that I had to read out and believe in in order to become a citizen of Australia. I want to read this to you. The Citizenship Pledge, right? From this time forward, under God, I pledge my loyalty to Australia and its people, whose democratic beliefs I share, whose rights and liberties I respect, and whose laws I will uphold and obey. That is the pledge that I made to this country, this abundant nation that we call Australia. Now, let that, let that land with you right now. Let that land. This, this country gave me an unbelievable opportunity an unbelievable, and an unbelievable lifestyle. And I owe it to all of you to allow you to experience both sides of a narrative. This podcast is with Peter McCulloch. Dr. Peter McCulloch is one of the most published doctors in the space in regards to COVID-19 and the narrative that's going on. And it's so, so, so important that we listen to someone who's so decorated, so knowledgeable, and just allow them to, to give us the other side so without further ado, I introduce you to this podcast. And one more thing before I before I put you into this. Go into this with an open mindset, right? Remove all your predetermined thoughts, feelings. It, th- those really aren't important right now. What's important is that you open your mind to hearing something different. I hope you enjoy this episode. I hope you understand that I do this for the right reasons. Much love. I suppose I listened I listened to the full Joe Rogan podcast that you did and I mean I I I I'm obviously English originally and I've lived in Australia for like seven and a half years and what I when I ask people on the street of Australia why they're getting the vaccine and why they're doing this, it's it's that the eighty percent of the people 
are, are just getting it because they just want to travel or they just want to they just want to do this or they just want to do that and they just want this to be over and then they've they've completed every mandate that the, the government has said come come do this do this do this and you can do this and then today uh, as we as we as we're coming on here which I want to talk to you about as well is um Scott Morrison the prime minister of Australia has as is now change is is putting putting a, a policy in place in court today in 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 government today to change the definition of vax of of um of fully vaccinated from double jabbed to triple jabbed mm-hmm. so the whole i just get i just wanted to obviously get you on here and i just I'm not as I'm not as well articulated and flowed in, in in vaccines and everything like Joe is. I don't I don't read in that in depth and I don't play in that space. But what what I really want to do for the audience today is get you to really like go through your journey, how what you've found out, and then really simplify everything so that people can really understand and 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 just rather than have rather than having to listen, I would have to listen to Joe Rogan's podcast two or three times to fully fully get it. And I, I just want them to listen to this once and be like, I get it. Do you know what I mean? I get, I get. There's more to this, and and I just, I, I just think we're all we're over in Australia. We've been persecuted like anything, locked, locked away, and, and we're not getting the right information. Well, thanks for having me on the show. So I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm a practicing internist and cardiologist. I'm also a trained epidemiologist. I'm in academic practice in Dallas, Texas. I just came from the hospital today. Uh, so, you know, some of the media doctors that the world gets to see are practitioners. So I see and examine patients every day. I uh, basically helped patients through all different phases of COVID-19 today, including navigation of the vaccines and what can happen afterwards, vaccine injury, vaccine protection. And like anything else in healthcare, what we know is everything we do has risks and benefits. And so I've been uh, completely focused on this for, for two years, uh, initially on early treatment. That's what we had to work with in order to save lives of people acutely sick in front of us. And COVID-19 is a problem of seniors. It's largely our senior citizens that have suffered greatly with COVID-19. It's not a problem that's really germane to me and you as younger people. I mean, sure, we can get yeah. COVID-19, but honestly, it's it's uh, most people will say it's, it's, it's like less than a common cold. It's really an issue of focusing on our seniors. Uh, that's really where it's all at. And it was all about early treatment in the first year. And now the second year of the pandemic, it's really all been about the vaccines. And Joe Rogan, a uh, wonderful uh, person, he likes to go long. He, you know, he just really likes this in depth. And I agree with you. I've been told by many uh, to say, listen, uh, if you thought you had something important to say in general, you, uh, if anything, you wish you would have gone shorter. Uh, that you've gone shorter uh, in terms of a period of time. Uh, but to be laser-focused on the vaccines when they came out of development, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson, Johnson, and AstraZeneca, uh, they had roughly 90% vaccine efficacy, but very low rates of challenge, meaning that, uh, let's say, a, a clinical trial program was 20,000 uh, 20, per arm. As an example, the rates of COVID-19 as a binary illness was less than 1% in both placebo and the active treatment. That meant very few people actually ran into COVID-19. So out of the clinical trials, that 90% protection really wasn't challenged, meaning that you know it wasn't done in a high prevalent state. What we now know now, it took basically about nine months for real world data to come in. So the papers 
that actually analyzed what was the benefit of the vaccines, they started to come in basically this fall, uh, late August, uh, September, October. And what we've learned is that those who selected the vaccines in the United States in general were healthier people, people who cared about their, um, their health more. And so we also knew that our CDC was telling hospitals and institutions, if someone take a vaccine, don't get any more COVID tests. But if someone didn't take a vaccine, go ahead and get COVID tests for elective procedures, hospital encounters. So the hospitalization data was trumped up by, in a sense, by differential testing. Uh, having said that, a paper by Self and colleagues from uh, the CDC, uh, as well as a paper by 1040 et al. from the Ivy Network, published in JAMA, both papers showed about an 85% protection from hospitalization. And I think that's a largely an overestimate because of that differential testing. And neither one of those papers actually distinguished who, were they really admitted for COVID or were they admitted for other things and had COVID testing in that differential uh, policy manner. But the 1040 paper delved into who actually had COVID and who progressed in the hospital. And that's a fair part of the papers published in JAMA. There, there was about a 59% risk reduction of those who took the vaccine for progression in the hospital. But when we got down to mortality, among those vaccinated in the hospital, the mortality rate was between 6 and 7%. And for those not vaccinated, the mortality was between 8 and 9%. So there was a mortality benefit, but it wasn't absolute. And there certainly were people who were fully vaccinated, dying, obviously being hospitalized and dying. And October 19th, our CDC had, through spontaneous reporting systems in the United States, 41,000-plus Americans who were fully vaccinated by the definition that the city holds, which is CDC holds, which is a strict definition. Uh, they were either hospitalized or died of COVID-19. Sadly, the majority were our seniors. And then the uh, important paper to point to is by um, Cohn and colleagues from the Veterans Administration, uh, where we had 700,000 U.S. veterans. There, over age 65, there was a mortality benefit of taking the vaccine, even if you didn't die of COVID. Again, healthier people take the vaccines, less healthier people do, don't. Um, but of those who actually tested positive for COVID-19 above 65, there was a 12-point differential between those two survival curves. And that narrowed considerably under age 65, there was only a 1% benefit in terms of mortality under 65. And then what happened in September for Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson, the protection fell off a cliff for protecting against COVID-19 because in September, most of the veterans got to a six-month anniversary date for uh, actually taking the COVID-19 vaccine. And then also we had the full shading in of the Delta variant, which is largely resistant to the vaccine. So we have Delta now. And we have basically a six-month expiration. It sounds like in Australia, you're facing that. And one of the first policy moves was to redefine what vaccinated means. That's, what, that's what's happening today, I think, is being put in front of Scott Morrison's bringing it in front of government that he wants to get it redefined from, from double-vaxxed to, to triple um, to to obviously that's not, that's not confirmed. That's not been passed yet. But it's something that obviously he's talking about. I think a lot of people over here are, are generally generally worried because they they the the general consensus from for, is that people aren't getting it for the protection. I mean, twenty percent of the twenty percent of the people I speak to are getting it because they believe in vaccines and they believe in the protection, which is fine. I'm not I'm not for pro-vax. I'm not anti-vax. I'm not anything in between. I'm just I'm just trying to be objective here. Like, if someone's getting the vaccine 
just because they want to leave the country or cross a state borderline. That's not really the right reason. That's not the reason you get a vaccine. You get a vaccine because you want the medical protection. I just feel that a lot of people are being coerced into getting something predicated on fear mongering in in the press when they're not really being given the the whole picture. I mean, when you look at the medical statistics of vaccinated people in Queensland, they they're telling us that we're at eighty ninety percent vaccinated in the Queensland state, and that that just cannot be true with the figures of the number of jabs that have been used in because there's five million people in Queensland, I think, near on, and and there's like there's been there's been not everyone could be double jabbed because there's like five million vaccines been given, so that would, that would, that would mean that we're at fifty percent or something along those lines. So I just wanted to wanted to kind of get a, f- a feeling from you on why the lines are so blurred and why the narrative is just played from f- in completely one direction. Well, the narrative has been uh, really singularly focused on the vaccine. And unfortunately, people still get sick whether they take the vaccine or not. So I've always had the view that we should focus on the small number of people getting sick. Australia, you have very little covid You've had very little COVID from the beginning. Some places appear to be spared. Australia is one of them. And uh, so because you have so little COVID, uh, I would anticipate you actually have more vaccine-related deaths than you have COVID deaths. So here, uh, it's not a favorable trade-off. We know in the paper by Kostoff and colleagues in Toxicology Reports, very carefully done paper. The title of the paper is Why Are We Vaccinating Children? But but reading the analysis, Kostoff actually analyzed different age strata. And he concluded at age 65 Uh, that uh, someone that age was five times more likely to die of the vaccine than taking their their chances with COVID-19, the respiratory illness. And that's based on the prevalence in the United States. It would be even more unfavorable in Australia. Well, the reason being, it has to do with determinism, meaning if you take the vaccine, it's a 100% chance you're exposed to the vaccine and what it does in the body. The, The vaccine is lipid nanoparticles loaded with genetic material, genetic materials circulate to the body. It's taken up and by a variety, a mosaic of cells in the body. We know it gets distributed to the brain, the heart, bone marrow, other delicate organs. And then, then the cells start to produce the dangerous spike protein, which is on the surface of the virus. So the vaccines have a dangerous mechanism of action. And the large number of deaths we've seen after the vaccine is, is almost certainly to do to some people must have either excessive production or prolonged circulation of the spike protein, and they may just be unlucky and they get a big distribution to the heart or to the brain, uh, or they have underlying blood clotting disorders, and so the spike protein uh, trips off blood clotting and that becomes fatal. But it's clear, analysis by Rosa McLachlan showed that of these deaths that happen, these large number of vaccine deaths that happen, 50% occur within 48 hours, 80% occur within a week. They are very uh, uh, temporally related to receiving the vaccine analysis by McLachlan from Queens in London showed 86% of the time there's no other explanation. They came in and took the vaccine and they've died a few days later. United States, we hit a somber milestone in the most recent open VAERS data report. Our government tells us to go to this database and to review it for safety, and we do, uh, but we hit 20,000 people have died after the vaccine that our CDC has verified. We know in our VAERS system about half of those cases are domestic, half are ex-US. They report through the pharmaceutical companies. And we know from a paper by Meisner and colleagues that that 86% of the time, the people who report the the deaths to VAERS or they report the non-fatal events are doctors, nurses, other healthcare providers, uh, morticians, paramedics, 
they actually think it's related to the vaccine. So, uh, you know, that's that filter involved there. So, uh, you know, we have an idea, even though VAERS represents an underreporting, what's there is real. It's alarming. Typically 50 deaths in the United States for a widely used product. That, that product's off the market. You can see we've gone way past 50 deaths. We're at 20,000 people have died shortly after the vaccine. There's a common, I believe there's a common misconception that the vaccines are FDA approved. Are, are the vaccines FDA approved or are they still in clinical trials? On August 23rd, there was a meeting uh, that Pfizer attempted to get FDA approval for its product and it was declined. Pfizer got a continuation of the emergency use authorization. Now, uh, in parallel, the German company BioNTech, their product is Comirnaty, they received a letter called a BLA, a Biological Licensing Agreement, which basically said they could move forward and seek approval, but they have to uh, give assurances on post-marketing studies. They have to write a package insert. And there's a lot of requests about lack of safety in pregnant women. And so, you know, BioNTech has to do all that work to ultimately get approved. But uh, no, what came out of that meeting was a false talking point. It went all the way up to the president of the United States saying that Pfizer was approved. And then America knew it wasn't approved because, uh, uh, you know, there was no package insert. There was, there's no buying and selling. Now, normally a vaccine gets approved. The insurance companies have to approve it. There has to be a price schedule. Uh, there has to be purchase of the product. None of that. It just continued to flow through the government program. So Pfizer's emergency use authorized. And so because of that, because they're all EUA, none are approved. You're right. The consent form across the United States uses the word investigation or research, meaning that when people sign up for this, it must be elective, and under no circumstances can they receive any pressure, coercion, or threat of reprisal from their employer or their government because it's research. So what you're, so what essentially you're saying, to put it in layman's terms, is the fact that if you've got to get vaccinated to go to a restaurant, that is coercion in terms of like them trying to, them trying to push you to get a vaccine, and. Is is there any country in the world right now where this is not a trial? In terms of is 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 there, is there any country where where the, where where any of the vaccines that we're talking about, where any of the where any of these um, medical interventions, is there any country out there where 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 these have all been signed off, complete? They've done the they've done all everything they need to do. You know, I don't know the answer to that question since there's so many different regulatory bodies and there's actually so many different vaccines. You know, the ones I mentioned are the ones common to Australia and the United States, but there is the Sinovac vaccine, which is the, uh, which is the killed virus vaccine. Uh, shortly, there'll be the Novavax vaccine, which is a purified uh, spike protein in a, in a matrix vaccine. There are so many different vaccines. But uh, the point is that, uh, you know, during Nazi Germany, there were horrific crimes committed by doctors. Doctors actually, in a sense, coerced and controlled uh, people who are basically Holocaust victims into Nazi research. Uh, and there were atrocities going on there. And so uh, in no way would we want Australia or anyone else to repeat the crimes of, of Nazi research. That's the Nuremberg Code. So people, uh, can you break? Can you break down for for the people that don't know what the Nuremberg Code is? The Nuremberg Code came out of the Nuremberg trials in Germany when when there really was a post evaluation of what happened and and there was really a reconciliation of doctors who who were thought to be in a mass psychosis were caught up in the hubris of of Nazi Germany but uh, they, they were actually performing heinous 
uh, uh, unethical research on subjects in, in Germany. Many times in the end, the end of the research ended in, in a gas chamber and uh, contributions to the death count and the Holocaust. Uh, they were widely considered crimes against humanity. And so in Nuremberg, Germany, uh, there was a proceedings held. It was called the Nuremberg Trials. And the Nuremberg Code came out of this and said, never again in research, never again will anybody receive any pressure, coercion, or threat of reprisal. Research can only be voluntary. So as a doctor, I've never encouraged the vaccines. Um, I, I give fair balance, but I can't encourage patients to go into research because that would be a form of pressure. So, like so, so coercion in, in vaccine form happens if, so if you told your patient to go and look more into the vaccine, that's coercion. And if you told them to not take the vaccine, that's also coercion. Well, you know, I have to be neutral. So the idea is a patient asks me questions regarding the risks and benefits. I have to fairly answer them. But I shouldn't lord over the patient and say, you should take the vaccine. Do, do, do you see what I mean? Because that would, if, if I had a research trial and I had a diabetes drug and I lorded over the patient, I said, listen, you need to be in my research study. You need to take this diabetes pill. My, you know, I, I would be called by the FDA. I'd be called by the Human Ethics Board. We can't do that. So I've never told patients that, that they have to get the vaccine. Uh, but when, they, when they, we discuss it, we fairly discuss the risks and the benefits. All the uh, vaccines have risks and benefits. I've laid out uh, both the risks and benefits just in a few sentences here. But all doctors should inform patients. So in Australia, you must be keeping a tally of the vaccine deaths. The patients have a fair uh, a right to know how many people are dying after the vaccine, how many are being injured and go into hospitals, and then how many are permanently disabled. That number in the United States now is over 31,000. Americans now are permanently disabled after the vaccine. They've had neurologic injury. They can't use their arms or legs. They have various forms of paralysis, uh, blood clots that have significantly damaged their heart or their lungs, uh, strokes. And this, uh, and this, is, pr this is proven, proven clin like clinically proven that it's, it's from the vaccine. Yeah, well, what happens is these get reported to the vaccine adverse event reporting system and they get assigned temporary various numbers. Then our CDC actually works to verify that, in fact, it happened, that the patient was hospitalized. Uh, there are discussions, uh, for instance, myocarditis. I've been called by a CDC officer to go over the labs, the EKG findings, uh, you know, to have an agreement that, in fact, the vaccine caused myocarditis in that case, that there wasn't another explanation. So what we get in the open VAERS report, in a sense, is vetted information. And it doesn't matter with respect to causality. Remember, these things that happen after a vaccine, just the fact they happen from a regulatory perspective, that's concerning enough. We, we don't have to demand causality. We know the mechanism of action of the vaccines is production of the Wuhan spike protein. Uh, that's very abnormal in the human body. We know it damages tissues. It causes blood clotting. It uh, gets into the brain, the heart. Our FDA and other authorities agree the vaccines directly damage the human heart. In a paper by Rose and myself in Current Problems of Cardiology, we showed that age distribution extends up to age 50. So myocarditis is not a problem with children exclusively. Uh, it, it's predominantly men, about 90% men, but all the way up to age 50. So seeing heart damage, uh, the, certainly the neurologic injuries, our uh, agencies agree that with Johnson & Johnson, it's cavernous venous and central venous thrombosis, which, which ultimately evolves into a very complicated, difficult stroke-like syndrome uh, with difficulties in vision and affecting uh, fundamental aspects, what we call the cranial nerves. And then they also agree that Johnson & Johnson, uh, and the analog would be uh, AstraZeneca in your country, can also cause Guillain-Barre syndrome 
That's ascending paralysis where uh, motor and sensory function are lost in the limbs and it ascends to the point where people go on the mechanical ventilator as a result of taking the vaccine. These are horrific complications that because they're occurring in such large numbers that doctors are facing every day. So, so, so if they're occurring in such large numbers, why are not more doctors speaking out about it? I think doctors uh, are caught up in uh, what we call mass psychosis, and I think this is important to go over. It happened in Nazi Germany since we brought up the Nuremberg Code. And uh, credit is given to Dr. Matthias Desmond in the University of Ghent in Belgium, and then Dr. Mark McDonald, uh, psychiatrist in Los Angeles. And McDonald has a book out on it called uh, The United States of Fear and about mass psychosis. But what this means is through the pandemic, we've, we've fulfilled all four criteria for mass psychosis, which I think is affecting doctors greatly. And that is we've had a prolonged period of uh, isolation. The second is that we've had uh, things of enjoyment taken away from us. The third is that we have constant free-floating anxiety. Uh, for instance, in the last three days now, we had the President of the United States uh, in an official statement, both uh, verbally and in writing, he said that the unvaccinated are in for a, a dark and deadly winter uh, uh, here around the holiday time. I mean, you, you can't inject more fear from the President of the United States into Americans right at the time of Christmas where they're joyously celebrating the holidays and their loved ones. And then the, the finally, the, the fourth criteria, the capper, is that a single solution must be offered to the dilemma uh, from a entity of authority, in this case, a government. And what Desmond says is there's no limits to the absurdity of the solution. So you look at vaccines, for instance, um, uh, this idea that someone who's already had COVID-19 and they have basically no risk of getting it again, the absurd solution is take a vaccine. It's like, well, I've already had COVID. I don't need a vaccine. The answer is take a vaccine. Uh, another example is that children don't get a serious COVID. They're not proven to be uh, vectors for passing the illness. Uh, there are no school outbreaks, whatever you. The absurdity is vaccinate the children. It's almost like vaccinate the children to become a human shield for the adults. And then it goes on and on. So this idea of uh, vaccinating uh, in order to be able to go to work. Well, it's been shown by uh, Singaragam in Lancet that a uh, wonderful paper on contact tracing, 39% of all transmission is from fully vaccinated to fully vaccinated. So it's, it's absurd to require a vaccine to go to work while the vaccinated are passing the virus to another one. It was a great example in by Chow and colleagues, Ho Chi Minh City published in Lancet, a, a unit of Oxford. They had a whole hospital, an outbreak. They're fully vaccinated with AstraZeneca. I mean, within a month or two of getting their second shot, they are fully vaccinated. They lock down the workers in dormitories and then they start getting the Delta variant and passing it to one another. And they do sequencing. They know exactly who's passing it to one another. And it is absolutely case closed that the vaccinated get COVID-19 and they pass it to one another. So with that knowledge, yeah, with that knowledge, we can't, obviously, it's absurd to base uh, social policy on the vaccination. So let me get this straight as well, just so, just so for everyone listening. If, if you get vaccinated, you have your first two doses, you do as any government's asking you to do right now, you get your first two doses of vaccine, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, whatever, one's, whatever one suits your purpose. Does, in your opinion, does that, is, is that going to weaken your immune system? And are you 
are you now protected against all these advanced strains? And if so, how many more advanced strains are we going to be seeing? You know, there's only two preclinical papers that suggest taking a vaccine, quote, weakens the immune system, and they're theoretical. I, I don't see any clinical evidence of this. Uh, the vaccines do provide some protection against the strains that are now ex- extinct, unfortunately, the wild type, alpha, beta, and to some extent, gamma. That's it. Uh, now they're extinct. We have 99% delta because we did mass vaccination. Mass vaccination allowed the dominance of delta, which is always in the background, uh, to emerge. And the reason why delta is so successful in thriving in the nose among the vaccinated. So, so it's surviving because we vaccinated on mass. Did we vaccinate too early? We vaccinated too broadly. And so we knew uh, with the pandemic, it was really our seniors and there were documented nursing home outbreaks. In fact, nursing home workers gave the virus to our seniors and had it become lethal. So uh, if we would have kept a narrow band of vaccination, keep it certainly below 25% of the population, that seems to be the critical limit. Maybe you know one or 2% of the population, just like we would for pneumococcal vaccine or meningococcal vaccine, we always narrowly apply vaccines. I think we wouldn't have promoted the dominance of the Delta variant. In fact, that mass vaccination threshold probably exceeded in Mashtara, India. And that's what really got it going. This was proof in principle with a paper by Arstavito and colleagues from uh, from Peru demonstrated they got to more than 25% vaccinated and the emergence of the Lambda variant came forward. That's what they had there. And that was in response to using the Sinovac vaccine. Uh, here, it was uh, the Sinovac, again, the Sinovac or Corona vaccine that seemed to spur the dominance of Delta. But it's clear that Delta uh, is largely resistant to the current forms of vaccines, which have not been adjusted to cover Delta. And a paper by Farenhold, another one by Venkata Krishnan, clearly showed antigenic escape, meaning that, that the spike protein is mutating with Delta to avoid the antibodies actually sticking to the spike protein. So... Can you can you just break down so that people understand, really understand the impact of a spike protein and how that affects a human being? The spike protein is the stick on the ball of the virus. Everyone knows that the ball is, is like a beach ball, and then you see these porcupine sticks coming out. That's called the spike protein, uh, and it's about 1,200 amino acids. It's got about 12 uh, glycosylation side chains. And the spike protein uh, has been manipulated in the lab in China uh, in order to make it more infectious and more lethal. Uh, the key manipulation point is called the furin cleavage joint, and that's uh, in the middle part of the, the spike between the outer segment, which is S1, and the inner segment, which is S2. And so as the virus encounters a human cell, the S1, the receptor binding domain, locks into an ACE2 receptor on the surface of respiratory epithelium. And then the body's own natural enzyme called furin cleaves it And that allows the virus to literally stick in the cell and become like its own syringe. And it injects the genetic material into our cell. That was by design uh, with research in collaboration between the National Institutes of Health and the Wuhan Institute of Virology. In fact, the U.S. dollars flowed from the United States to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. This has come out in Senate hearings uh, led by Senator Rand Paul. So it was clear the United States played a role in what was the development of a, a more lethal, more infectious um, organism. So, so what, what you're saying at this point in, then is not only is it man-made, but it's been 
man-made in 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 a collaboration between the United States and China. At least at that extent. Now, I'm not an expert in uh, you know all the different exchanges that went on, but I'd point your listeners to uh, uh, Peter Bregan, his new book COVID nineteen and the Global Predators. We are the prey. This is nonfiction. Uh, it is extensive, about a thousand citations. And uh, goes into, I mean, everything's in the open. You know, the first papers published on this in 2006 of can we make a coronavirus more dangerous and, and how the, the steps were taken through iterative processing uh, to see if they make it uh, more dangerous, actually jump from uh, a bat to a human. Uh, all of that work was done at that lab, and there were many visitors. Uh, there were training seminars in the United States. Johns Hopkins held one. Uh, that was it was called the SPARS pandemic. It was t- 2017. It says it, the, the, the crisis will be a coronavirus. It will be related to MERS and SARS. It will hit the United States. Uh, there'll be great confusion about treatment. And then the population will be, in a sense, manipulated by social and major media in order to accept mass vaccination as a solution. So there was a training exercises on this about how we would do this. What's, what's the benefit of that, though? What is the benefit of 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 of, of this for, from the bigger picture, from how you see it? I think the perceived benefit would be that some type of global plan for mass vaccination, if it could be executed, and if the vaccines were safe and effective, and unfortunately these are not, but if they were safe and effective, that this could be a roadmap for, you know, a next round of eradicative worldwide treatment. If we wanted to eradicate, um, uh, for instance, influenza, or eradicate another respiratory illness or a contact uh, type of illness like Ebola. Uh, I think you know, those could have been the, the worldwide goals of those who had those grand visions, uh, but it's just not something we've done in human medicine. We've always had very limited vaccination, you know, appropriate, age-appropriate vaccination. And you know, I personally am pro-vaccine. I've taken all the vaccines I'm supposed to on the vaccine schedule. I traveled to India and I, you know, according to guidelines, took the vaccines. Uh, but I've had COVID-19, the respiratory illness. And uh, I know that, you know, I would have, in fact, I was excluded from <coughs> regulatory randomized trials of the COVID-19 vaccines because the FDA and the manufacturers knew that I couldn't get COVID-19 again. I was protected from it. And now we have over 140 studies supporting natural immunity, which is robust, complete, and durable. In the United States, our CDC is telling us we have 146 million Americans, and these are now in arrears, that are fully immune. They're naturally immune. They would never need a vaccine. They, they have a negligible risk of ever getting COVID-19 again. I mean, it's a wonderful thing to be naturally immune. Australia, you have very few of those since you've had little COVID-19. I think in Australia, it's harder because you have a bigger susceptible population. So if, if our population is... is more susceptible like you say should we be going for a herd immunity type scenario or should or, or or should we be vaccinating the people at the most risk and letting the rest of the people elect whether they want to get vaccinated or not you know australia may have the smallest population for the biggest landmass out there you could be up there with canada i'm not sure how this works out and it's 26 maybe, million people yeah, but we may need information on dispersion, but there's something about Australia. There's actually even something about Southeast Asia that's been relatively spared of COVID-19. You know, in the United States, we have more cases 
per million and more deaths per million than any country in the world. And we've, you know, have a first class healthcare system. We have all you know, everything available to us that we want to. We have you know, a million doctors, half a million nurse practitioners and physician assistants. We have a lot of resources in the United States, and yet we've done poorly in the pandemic response. Australia, in fact, has done much more. It, it, it looks like my understanding of things is that Australia could just stop the lockdowns right now. Uh, they could just pack up these concentration camps they're building and uh, just go back to normal life. And if someone gets COVID-19, just start an early treatment protocol, uh, lead off with uh, oral nasal decontamination. We now use povidone iodine. It's really important. Every Australian should have a bottle of 10% povidone iodine available on you know, Amazon anywhere for about five US dollars uh, and dilute that with two with uh, two teaspoons, six ounces of water and squirt it up the nose with a spray bottle of goods, sniff it back, spit it out the mouth. That cleanses the nose once a day after you've come home. And then during acute treatment, by the way, we accelerate that to every four hours because it markedly reduces the viral burden that's uh, replicating in the nose. It makes it a milder syndrome. That was shown in a randomized trial by Chowdhury and colleagues. That approach, by the way, is, is first line in Bangladesh. They have almost zero COVID in, in the very crowded conditions in Bangladesh. Um, what we know in Australia is you don't have that crowded condition, but I would start with oral nasal decontamination and then nutraceuticals and supplements. Again, this is all available over the counter, uh, vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc, quercetin, and I would add in another over the counter antihistamine, antiviral, and that's famotidine, famotidine or pepsin. So you could have a nice toolbox of over-the-counter products in Australia and everyone, it shouldn't be a surprise tomorrow if somebody in your viewership or your, somebody in your circles develops COVID. We, there should be no more surprise calls. We, we're, yeah. two, we're two years into this. I get calls, so-and-so's got COVID and they're surprised. I'm saying, well, you know, do your research ahead of time. Know where your monoclonal antibody center is. Have your home survival kit ready. Um, you know, be ready to handle this. And uh, I think that readiness would help Australia a lot. But if you ended all your lockdowns, packed up your camps and just treated patients with what's available, the current over-the-counter things I've mentioned, and also I'd say monoclonal antibodies. And if not monoclonal antibodies, then hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, favipiravir, which is available just north of you and northeast of you in Japan and elsewhere. And now we have two, two, new, two new drugs, uh, one by, by Pfizer is a combination of a chimase-like three protease inhibitor plus ritonavir, and then a new Merck drug, molinopiravir. That's just the antiviral layer. We add doxycycline, azithromycin, then we get into use of inhaled budesonide, well-supported clinical trials. Nobody should be surprised that COVID's coming. Like or COVID's like we're all going to get COVID. We're all going to get COVID. Let's let's just let's just put it out there. So there's a toolbox that kind of Australians could keep in their cabinet and, and keep 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 at home to right. kind of deal with this stuff. But, but let me uh, update your listeners. Um, not everybody will get COVID, and there is good news. Uh, leading research by Dr. Sabine Hazen uh, in the laboratory in Ventura Hills, California, has shown that those there are fortunate people who have a healthy microbiome. That that it turns out that the blend of bacteria that we have from our oral pharyngeal tract all the way down through our GI tract, some individuals actually despite clearly getting exposed to SARS-CoV-2, cannot contract the illness. And it's probably conferred by a healthy microbiome. It's thought to be about 15% of individuals, but she has clear pairs of people in the home who uh, exposed each other and one doesn't get it. And, and they don't have underlying evidence of immunity. They simply can't get it because the microbiome is defending them. I don't think, I think the way this is working out is I don't think 
Australia is ever going to have a big caseload. For some reason, there are certain regions in the world that are going to be relatively spared, and this has happened with other pandemics. And what will happen is... I kind of think it's down to the fact that we've got good weather, we get good sunlight, the, the population is reasonably healthy. If you go out at 4 a.m., 5 a.m. in Australia, everyone's out exercising. It's, it's, a, it's a country that's, that's been brought up around exercise, good living, good lifestyle, good food, um, phenomenally abundant all over this country. Um, obviously, there are certain cases where that isn't the case, but more so than not, it's a pretty privileged country to live in. And I kind of think that we, even though the world might be in a pandemic, and I'm not, I'm not disputing that, Australia on, on, its, on its own narrative has never been in a pandemic. I, I agree with that. I've been to Australia a few times. I've been uh, very privileged to visit, you know, Surfers Paradise in Canberra, Sydney, um, you know, out to down in Adelaide. And I agree with you. It, it reminds me a lot of Texas in some ways. Uh, certainly Adelaide does. Um, uh, but, you know, Australia uh, has a commitment to fitness, uh, unlike almost any country. And uh, it is survival of the, the fittest. Those who are uh, stronger and fitter do have a milder case of COVID-19. COVID-19 seems to prey upon the elderly, but also the obese and those with diabetes. Yeah. Almost exclusively, those are the ones who have a difficult time. Uh, young, fit, and strong individuals. COVID-19 is, is it's like a common cold. It's, it's, it's very modest. And I, I just predict for some reason, we're two years into this, if Australia was going to have its time, if, if this illness was going to set down and ravage Sydney, or ravaged Melbourne, it would have happened. L look at your outside rallies. Look at, we see these pictures in Melbourne, for instance, with, you know, throngs of people on the street. Uh, believe me, if you were yeah. going to have COVID-19 outbreaks, it would be now, and, and we're not seeing them. Yeah, and, and th this 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 is why it's hard to keep supporting the narrative and the scaremongering that's going on if you turn on the TV. Because it's... It, and in, in England too, I feel sorry for the people in England because from the outside looking in, I mean, Boris Johnson has just gone on TV in England and said, um, get boosted now. And he's he's put in, he's stopped all healthcare for cancer patients and all this kind of stuff in the UK in order to just fully roll out this third jab now. But my, my question to you is how how many jabs do we have to have before we get before we get whatever we're meant to get like when can when can we all move forward if we keep getting jab after jab after jab after jab after jab after jab it, it, it I, I kind of feel like i'm going back in a boxing gym and there's that many jabs being thrown like it's, it's kind of it's, kind of, it's, it's just yeah, it, it, it's becoming clear it's it's becoming clear to keep giving repeated injections of the same vaccine that doesn't really cover the organism at hand very well is is not the solution uh, you know, the minimum acceptance criterion for a vaccine is a vaccine must have at least 50% protection against the organism and must at least last a year. You know, if it doesn't last a year, it's not a viable vaccine. People can't be checking in for injections of genetic, genetic treatment every six months or every th every three months. It's not viable as a effective Peter, are you, are, you, are you saying, are you, did I just hear that right? Are you saying that it can't be called a vaccine unless it protects you for at least a year? Well, it's, those are considered what's, what we call regulatory-wise acceptance criteria. If we start to give something uh, on a more frequent basis than once a year, in a sense, it, it is 
we're giving people chronic medical therapy and we have to ask what type of chronic medical therapy are we giving? We're giving gene transfer technology platforms, either messenger or adenoviral DNA platforms that, that repeatedly uh, trick the body into making the spike protein, this dangerous spike protein that was devised in this lab in China. And we now know by work by Bruce Patterson that was uh, released on July 29th. I've actually interviewed him on my show, The McCullough Report, America Out Loud. Bruce has told us that the spike protein lasts in the body for about a year and a half. A year and a half. Can you imagine the Australians, they take shot number one, they got a year and a half to clear this protein out of the body. The protein gets into the brain, the heart, the muscles, the nerves. Uh, in some, it causes damage. You got a year and a half to get rid of this stuff. Then you take shot number two. You got another year and a half. Now you got a booster every six months. You never clear out the spike protein. And it's the progressive accumulation of spike protein that has scientists worried. We're very worried. Uh, this idea of loading the human body with a dangerous foreign protein and just having it stick around in our body uh, gives us great concern for problems such as repeated heart damage and heart failure, for repeated neurologic damage and a whole variety of uh, neurodegenerative diseases, for repeated attacks on the bone marrow. We already have official diseases like vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic purpurea. We'll probably have a whole new host of blood disorders. And So in, in, in your personal opinion, when are we going to really start to know what we've been putting in our bodies? Like how many years down the track uh, until we start to see the the full culmination of this, of whatever this is? Well, we've seen enough immediate uh, death, but also immediate um, non-fatal and permanently disabled conditions. We've seen enough uh, to shut down the program. I mean, multiple, a French group in March said cut down, shut down the program, a a, 50, a 57 author, 17 country paper in May, I was part of that, uh, said, you know, get safety in line, shut down the program. And now the evidence-based consulting group in the UK in June uh, produced a, you know, nearly a two dozen page report to the MHRA saying, shut down the program. It's just not safe. We evaluated it. Who's, as, who's writing these papers, Peter? Who, 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 uh, well, who's, who's behind? They're by, they're written by some of the most esteemed authors in the world. Um, they have basically called on world authorities to shut down the, 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 the program. And, um, you know, the one I was on was in May. And the first author is Bruno and colleagues represented some of the top uh, leading authorities in uh, South America, United States uh, and Europe. And evidence based consulting group in the UK, they are the lead consultants to the World Health Organization. They are uh, beyond reproach. They are considered very accurate analyses. Uh, analysts, they wrote the MHRA and said the vaccines are not uh, suitable for human use. They're not safe enough. Shut down the program. The lead consult. let me get this straight. The lead consultancy for the WHO in terms of like virology and all this kind of stuff is saying this is not safe. Shut it down. Right. And they analyzed the yellow card system, the UK system. So they didn't rely on US data the yellow card system, and they independently concluded the same thing we're concluding here, that the vaccines are not sufficiently safe. There's been too many deaths, too many injuries and permanent disabilities for the vaccines to remain uh, viable on the market. They, sh they should be shut down. And because this, this really interests me, but like, 
if I took this, if if when when I take this double vaccine or whatever, I've got to take to get my freedoms back at this moment, or I'll take the third one. I take this the take the triple vax. So now I'm triple vaccinated, right? Which under current conditions probably allows me some some more freedom than what we, than what I can get without it. I get triple vaccinated. How how long? Once I'm triple vaccinated, am I at risk to dying or or, or, or like die? Not I'm putting this in the wrong context, but how how much longer am I at risk um, to 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 medical conditions coming from this? Like in terms of not not natural. Like obviously I can walk across the road and get run over. That I understand that, and obviously I could die of of, of so, some form of failure. But it, increasing my 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 chance of of, of obviously obviously something fatal happening to me because I've had this. You know, per shot, uh, there's something called reactogenicity. So we know from shot one to shot two with the messenger RNA that there was about an 80-fold increase in reactogenicity on shot two. Shot two is always rougher than shot number one. We don't know about reactogenicity now of shot three since it's more distant in time from shot one. Uh, but again, each shot is about a year and a half to clear out the spike protein. After each shot, the immediate risk period is about 30 days. We know the spike protein circulates in the body for up to 30 days. Uh, but the concern is with progressive spike uh, protein accumulation, we'll get brand new diseases. So for instance, the Chinese have published a paper showing that the S2 segment of the spike protein, which is installed in the body with the vaccines, that inter- interacts with two important cancer genes p53 and what's called brca or BRCA gene the p53 is a tumor suppressor gene that's a governor that suppresses tumors and we know it's related to kidney cancer melanoma other solid organ cancers and then the BRCA gene which is governs uh, breast cancers and female reproductive cancers so there's great theoretical concern that the vaccines could become oncogenic once we get to boosters because now we have enough exposure over enough period of time. It typically takes three to five years of exposure of something to cause a cancer. That for sure is going to happen. Uh, the vaccine program in, the, in Australia looks like it's on schedule to get to a fourth shot. Israel's already at a fourth shot. Well, I'm telling you, we get to four and five shots, that's going to be enough for the vaccines, if they are oncogenic, for us to see a real uh, development of a cancer uh, in a sense, chronic disease epidemic to follow. So, so how long will it be before we? Before, are we going to see that straight away after after the after months after the final after, after this fifth shot, or is this is this years and years down the track? And because what's what's the worrying thing for me? Look, looking at it, trying to look at it objectively, trying to not trying to be in the fence, trying to be on the fence for it all is the fact of like how how is it proven? in years to come that xyz cancerous generated from from this vax how how's how is that going to be connected from from a from, how's that, how how does that even come together as as like this caused this well there are there are ways in cancer now to see how they're genetically related so if we see a giant surge in brca related cancers uh in, in, in people in people who have taken the vaccines uh, we would see it. Now, if everyone takes the vaccines and everyone takes them on schedule, we won't have any ability to discern, uh, in fact, what's going on, except we maybe look at other countries where the, there hasn't been an uptake of the vaccines. The same thing would be true for P53-related 
vaccines. But I, I think, I would tell you, I think as an epidemiologist, I think it takes three to five years of constant exposure before that happens. That's probably going to mean uh, three or four jabs in order to get three to five years of exposure of spike protein. Because remember, the spike protein is being loaded in the human body and you can't get it out. Your cells are trying to remove it, but it is such a difficult protein. It gets into the spaces in between cells and your body's constantly trying to clear it out. So I can just tell you this much. The spike protein is the last thing you want installed in your human body. If you want a nice, healthy body, you know, you don't want a year and a half payload of Chinese spike protein in your human body, in your body. It's just not something you'd want to. Is a lot of my friends that have taken the vaccine um, have told me that they feel chronically tired uh, on a personal basis. They've told me they feel chronically tired and they've, they've, they've told me that they don't feel the same since. Um, and I've also had some friends that have had some really bad reactions to it. I won't mention on here because I'm trying to I'm trying to keep this down the line of being, you know, fair from both sides. But is 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 one of the is fatigue something that would come from from having a spike protein in your body for for that period of time? It certainly would. Now, the spike protein is also responsible for what we think are the long COVID syndrome. So people after the respiratory illness who have persistent symptoms such as, you know, brain fog and neurocognitive dysfunction, uh, ringing in the ears, uh, you know, it's called tinnitus, uh, which is incessant. People can't sleep and they just have incessant ringing in the ears, headaches, chronic headaches, uh, muscle weakness, uh, peripheral uh, nervous uh, system abnormalities. They can't feel their legs or, or they have an uncoordinated uh, form of a, a gait. These are the, the, the chronic neurologic manifestations. I, I think the great concern, though, is with each injection, we have 30 days of really high-risk activity. So, for instance, a young man your age, the risk would be myocarditis or heart inflammation. We now know in a paper by uh, Rose and myself in Current Problems of Cardiology that the risk for myocarditis extends all the way up to age 50, and it's about 90% men. And so we, we can't predict who's going to get the heart damage from the vaccine. So for someone like myself who does rigorous exercise, maybe some forms of boxing training, if, if, if I did that kind of training in the 30 days after I've taken each dose, I'm, I'm massively at risk of something happening within my heart. If you actually had myocarditis, so let's say you had some minor chest pain or you had some uh, inflammation in the heart that you just didn't have any symptoms and you went out and exercised hard, sure, that in fact that could be the substrate for uh, sudden cardiac death while boxing. And we have great concern of all these athletes, the montage of athletes. I think we're up to about 200 uh, European uh, athletes, maybe Australian, you know, soccer, football, these really strenuous activities where they're just dying on the field, that in fact, it could be the result of subclinical myocarditis if they've taken the vaccine in the antecedent months before the event. Are, are, are those figures with the footballers, like are they fully correct in, in, in terms of like, is, is that a true representation? Is it is it 150 footballers in the UK that, that, have, that have had adverse reactions to this and, and had myocarditis? I think across the... Um, across the sports reporting, I think they're closer to 200 athletes. And I've commented on this on national TV. What we don't know is who's taken the vaccine and who hasn't. 
and when did they take it. All that research needs to be done. Uh, what we do know, though, is we know in a paper by Hogan colleagues from the University of California, Davis, using the VARES and VSAFE data, that in children aged 12 to 17, that uh, a boy is more likely to be hospitalized with myocarditis or heart injury than he is ever being hospitalized with COVID-19, the respiratory illness. It's not a it's not a smart thing to take the vaccine. You're more likely to get heart damage. And then we know from our VARES data now that we have over 16,000 Americans where they've had heart damage from uh, the vaccines, myocarditis, myopericarditis. And now one report from uh, Korea, Choi and colleagues, a fatal case, a 22-year-old Korean man takes the vaccine, develops chest pain, gets him into the hospital, dies seven hours later. They do an autopsy, and he has just absolutely uh, undeniable heart inflammation that killed him, uh, the same type of heart inflammation that could be killing these athletes. And then they reported uh, um, in another paper, Lim and colleagues from Korea, a woman in her 30s, same thing, but they were able to save her. They had to do CPR and put her on a specialized form of life support. And then we've had a fatal case reported by Washington in St. Louis uh, over the summer of myocarditis. These will continue to rack up as our athletes uh, get vaccinated. I think it's inevitable. We'll see more and more fatalities among our athletes. I, uh, it, it's 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 a it's a sad thing when when you know you 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 have to you have to get a, a vaccine to be able to play this professional sport and then because of your fitness it, it can kind of potentially put you at risk at, at this happening in, in this certain time frame it's kind of a it's not really um, an ideal kind of thing to be faced because there's a lot of professional athletes especially in Australia that you know just want to play their sport just want to just want to participate want to get paid they've obviously gone without crowds in certain sports in this country because of all this that's been going on especially in sydney and melbourne the afl and all these kind of sports that are played in australia the rugby every everyone's feeling the effects of it everyone every, I, I the general consensus in australia as far as i'm concerned is the fact that we we all just want to move forward right there's just there's, it's just that there's too much you know it's positioned as vaccinated against unvaccinated and in my opinion it's, it's just like allow humans to have the choice of whatever they put in their body and allow the, the 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 human to make a choice predicated on having the best information available and one of the things that's bothered me is the fact that people like yourself are speaking out and are speaking out in, in a certain narrative and because it doesn't fit the narrative of what the world wants to listen to at this moment in time and on the news it's classed as misinformation no it, sh it shouldn't be classed like that it should be classed as an alternative opinion because you've you've got f how many years how many years experience have you got in in in, in this and how many papers you've wrote 50 odd papers how many years experience like it, it it just it just baffles me how how it's 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 being clearly chosen who's pushed to one side and who's not and who fits narratives do you believe and i'll just point it out there do you believe that um some 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 doctors know that that the information that they're given perhaps isn't f fully right but yet they're but yet they're giving it because they feel pressured to adhere to government pressures and 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 all this kind of stuff I can't possibly know what's in doctors' minds or how they could, uh, in good conscience, recommend patients get the vaccine and then have such large numbers of people die. It's literally like recommending a, a death sentence 
to these patients. And, you know, I think the numbers make it challenging. In the United States, uh, we're told 200 million Americans have taken the vaccine. A million have been injured by the vaccine. Uh, so that means doctors who have enough people in their practice are going to have injured patients and then those die. People will say, well, maybe, you know, vaccinating 200 and just having a million, one million injured, uh, that that's, that ratio is okay. That, that's kind of the eugenics theory of Nazi Germany, that, you know, small price to pay. You know, Judeo-Christian countries, you know, we just don't that way. I tell you, 25 or 50 deaths, we shut it down. It's just we will not inject something harmful in people for some theoretical benefit to the larger population. It happened in 1976, the U.S. swine flu pandemic, 25 deaths, we shut it down. We vaccinated 55 million people in the United States, shut it down. It wasn't safe, and ultimately it rose to 53 deaths, 550 cases of Guillain-Barre. So swine, so swine flu, the vaccination pro procedure for swine flu, that got that got completely abolished because the risk to the vaccination for swine flu is more than the actual deaths it's going to cause in the country. Is that essentially what you're saying? No, back then they didn't have the sophisticated uh, calculations that we had now. It's just the absolute numbers of deaths. It is not acceptable from a society perspective to ask somebody to take a vaccine and go home and die. It's just not, it doesn't matter how good the vaccine is, is that crosses a line of acceptability. And so uh, it was shut down. There was never any calculation of who was going to benefit and who was not. Now we have the papers from Kostov and, and Hogue that clearly show people are harmed more with the vaccines than they're helped. And, you know, getting back to the doctors and what do they think, uh, one of the interesting uh, things you can follow in the United States is Steve Kirsch. Steve is, he started the COVID-19 Early Treatment Fund. Now he started the COVID-19 Vaccine, Vaccine Injury Fund. He has an open offer. He's, he's uh, called and written uh, prestigious medical schools, the media, um, the, our government agencies. His offer is, if anybody will come to the table and have a roundtable discussion on the vaccines and give the point of view that the vaccine should be administered, he'll personally pay them $2 million to show up. And not a single person has shown up, if that gives you any idea of who really believes in the vaccines. Do you think there'd be some junior faculty from Stanford or Harvard who would just stand in there, make the case for the vaccines and collect $2 million? No one will show up. That should really tell Australians something. Yes, it's, um, it's an amazing, it's an amazing um, standing to, to, to hear that. So what do you think then for what, what advice would you would you give us in Australia right now in terms of like how can we move our lives forward and how can we make sure that we do we we do everything in, in a fair and by like unbiased way going forward? I think the doctors are the key, and what Australians could do is they can print off uh, any one of the vaccine safety reports from MHRA or from the US or if you have one in Australia, and they should actually confront the doctors and say how can you possibly ask me to take the vaccine when so many people have died from the vaccine. And the pay, people need to wake up the doctors. The one every single doctor visit should be some discussion about the vaccine safety, and say, listen, I, as a patient, I don't feel comfortable with this. So many people have died. My friends have died. They're injured now. This is horrific. It ought to come up time and time again until the doctors wake up out of the trance and they understand the vaccines are not sufficiently safe or effectively safe. I I, I asked a doctor in Australia this. I said. 
you know what you know how many people have died from this and he said he said it's not it's not even a concern like it's not even a thing well that's the reason why again that's the reason why the conversation has to happen and just keep bringing it up and up again i think patients who die of the vaccine in australia uh someone someone in your circles ought to be keeping track of the social media entries or whatever keep your own statistics keep your own registry this can't be hidden forever uh in the united states uh, there was an informal internet survey Last summer, it asked the question, uh, do you know somebody who's died of the vaccine or somebody in your circle of circles? And the answer was 12%. That's a big number that somebody knows somebody who's died of the vaccine. So rates of vaccination in the United States plummeted in April. The word got out that the vaccines, you could die after a vaccine and people stopped taking them. The, I went by the vaccine center a little while ago when I came home from the hospital. It's got dust on it. Nobody's been in that vaccine center for six months. Nobody wants the vaccines. And so there were these uh, really perverse inducements like, you know, have a beer, have a donut, um, uh, you know, get a million dollar raffle. No one would take the vaccines. Free college scholarship. No one would take them. In Europe, they've offered a free session in a brothel. If you'll take the vaccine, the men won't do that. Uh, I can tell you, nobody wants these vaccines. And so it's because they know they're not safe enough to take. If the vaccines were safe, People would say, listen, I'll just take it. I'll just go on with life. But it's the safety that's really the showstopper. And what people expected, they expected some protection from the vaccines, and the protection's not strong enough to make the case. So the, so the vaccine stakeholders are really stuck right now. The, the hardest thing from, from, from my point of view and from, from people who listen to this podcast that perhaps haven't, that haven't taken it and the people that have taken it that are listening to this, I like, even if you take two, you might have to have a third one. If you take three, you might have to have a fourth one. Like, no one knows the, no one knows the answer to the most critical question. The critical question to me is, okay, cool. I'll agree to get vaccinated for you because you're stipulating I have to do that to go back to my, what I term as a free life in terms of allow me to go to restaurants, allow me to go to, to take... Uh, your, your niece and nephew down the park to play. Do you know what I mean? Any, anywhere, like you got to go. You got unless you're outside, you got to have a. You got to have. You got to have this so-called vaccine passport. My issue is when 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 does when does the when do I have to stop going and getting injections? Because I can't. Because I can't. I don't want to be going through this forever. Like in terms, of I don't want to be going back and back and back and back and back and getting more and more and more and more doses. Because you must have a point in terms of spike proteins because it's not just you talking about it. It's many, many, many doctors talking about it. It's not just you mentioning this. It's, you're, you're not the first person I've told, that, that's told me about this. So if there's a consensus of doctors then that are telling me that if I keep getting vaccinated that I'm going to get this increase in spike protein and that I've got to be worried about it as a human being, of course, I should have the right to ask then, okay, how many of these doses are you going to get me? It just seems at this moment in time, and correct me if I'm wrong, Peter, but every time there's a new variant, right, which there is now with Omicron, and, and, the, and there's probably more that, are, more that are due on the way, I'm going to have to get vaccinated again. So my question at is... This, at, this point, at this point in time, my forecast is uh, if you, quote, take the vaccines, you're signing up for chronic medical therapy uh, that's indefinite. That means an injection, and I would predict it's going to accelerate to an every three-month schedule. 
So, I mean, you're basically putting yourself on every three-month injectable therapy. Everything we know about this spike protein, there's not a single good thing that's come out of this spike protein in terms of its damaging and lethal effects to the body. So you're signing up for basically a chronic injection of something that is very injurious to the human body. Then you're going to try to sustain that into the next injection, to the next injection. It, it seems like it's a no-win proposition at this point in time. So essentially, to put it to put it in the boldest terms possible, it's essentially like getting Botox. And once you've had Botox in your forehead, you have to keep getting it and getting it and getting it because otherwise, it, you know, you you, you can't you can't you, you can't go back once you start doing that kind of stuff. Do you know what I mean? Once you once you once you take once you take these measures, you can't stop doing them. You can always get off the train, and and I can tell you about seventy percent of the patients in my practice took the vaccine. They. They took it patriotically early in December, January, February, March. And by March, you know, the word got out that people were dying and many people stopped. Um, what I'm observing is patients now in December who took the vaccines, you know, 11 months ago, nothing happened. They're fine. I, I don't think they got much protection from the, from the vaccines, but nothing happened. And I tell them, listen, I think you're fine. The body's a miraculous creation. Uh, your body has fought off the messenger RNA or the adenoviral DNA. Your body is clearing out the spike protein. You didn't have any complications. Fine. I think as long as you don't take a booster and start accumulating the spike protein, you're fine. So, so the double vaccination, in in essence, then is is that's going to give you adequate protection, and that's fine. But all the boosters that come after that is where you have a have a have a real problem. I mean, I have a great concern. I, I may be just overly concerned. Maybe taking them every six months won't have any additional risk. Maybe it's all the upfront initial risk. I could be completely wrong on this. It's just that I can tell you as a doctor and a scientist, and, and so I, I have over 650 peer-reviewed publications in the literature. Uh, that, that could be as many as anybody in Australia. 50, uh, 51 publications in COVID-19. My, my testimony has been relied upon. Uh, in the Senate, multiple courts, state houses. I'm a frequent contributor on national TV. I'll be on national TV tomorrow night, uh, basically to provide balance from what we hear from our authorities. And, it, and it's fair for me to do that. It's fair for me to do that. I'm just giving you my opinion. I'm concerned. I don't see anything good coming out of this. That, that, that worries me. That really worries me. And I think it should worry a lot of people as well. The fact that, you know, if, if, there need and there needs to, there needs to people need to understand um, there needs to be balance there needs to be this balance of like people like yourself who talk on your side and then other people like, I want to listen to both sides I want to I want to hear a full balanced discussion of of you know the positives and the negatives I've listened I've listened to um, a lot of people talk about the positives um, I might even have to get you on here and debate one of them but the but you can't, but the problem is the negatives that you well, speak yeah, of in a, I've been involved in a yeah the negatives that you speak of are pr pretty outweigh the positives that I've been told of that's that's what's worrying me the fact of all this spike protein and stuff like this well I can tell you I've been in a couple point counterpoint discussions one live one here in Dallas at the University of Dallas and then one online with a, a doctor from uh, UCLA uh, in the context of like an Orthodox Jewish community. And in both circumstances, you know, I expressed my concerns and I, I laid out the rationale for them. And uh, the, on both occasions, 
the deaths were dismissed. Like, like listen, it's going to happen. Uh, we have a mass vaccination program. People are going to die due to the vaccine. But more people are saved. So we have to sacrifice lives now to save lives in the future. And, and it's a brutal argument to uh, accept. People are horrified when they hear that, saying it's like an, an eugenics argument, saying, listen, we're going to have to actually kill off some people to save the larger herd. And, and, and to hear that from doctors saying that is just absolutely chilling. That is... Um that is that is a really worrying statement from someone who's meant to be looking after your health, you know, to 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 put it to put it mildly. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you become a doctor, don't you don't you, what is the kind of oath that gets put around that that patient um, relationship? There's the, the, there's some form I can't think of the name for it, but there's some form of oath that you take that you're gonna you're gonna only prescribe what's best for your patients at that particular time, and the worrying thing is right now that everybody's p- p- getting prescribed the vaccine and the vaccine is great for some people. It's going to offer protection to some people, but it's not great for everybody. And some people it's some people should be prescribed against getting it because it's going to actually do them more harm than good. That is fair and balanced. That is, that is the fair and balanced way of doing this, Peter, to say, okay, you're vulnerable, we'll vaccinate you. You are actually at more risk because you're a younger person and you play sport at a high level from from this and this and this happening to to you. So we're going to prescribe you not get this, and we're going to sign your certificate. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, you actually you crystallized it perfectly. Um, you know the oath is, and the Hippocratic oath applies to a single patient that the doctor will do his or her best for a single patient. The Hippocratic oath doesn't say that they will do something uh, dangerous to a patient to try to better help a larger population. That's not the Hippocratic Oath. We always take each patient one by one. We weigh weigh out the risks and benefits, and we always uh, do no harm. That's the first part of the Hippocratic Oath. Uh, So I can't in good faith uh, recommend a patient take one of these vaccines. A, it's in research, um, but I know now these analyses showing in general more harm than good. I mean, and the FDA has heard these analyses, the Kostoff and Hogue analyses, both in the September and October meetings of the FDA when they deliberated over pediatric vaccinations. And these analyses that are in the the literature, medical literature, are not disputed. So yeah. it turns out our authorities understand that the vaccines will do more harm than good. So they're not disputed. It, I'm, just, I'm just actually in shock, to be honest, from how much clear indication from me that like clear indication from you sorry that it's not it it just has to be this has to be like any other medical like any other medical procedure it has to be a case by case basis it is not clear that like there is there is vac- there's nothing wrong with vaccines vaccines are fine vaccines are appropriate for some people like i said and vaccines are inappropriate for other people and there needs to be it needs to be at the doc, it needs to come back on the doctor's discretion your family doctor your doctor needs to have a discretion on whether you should get it or you, or you should not and what's happening at the moment is it's mass prescription of something that's not known what's going to happen in the future to you your family your mum your dad no, nobody nobody knows the long term implications of this and like you said it's it's widely thought in some circles that this is FDA approved and it's clearly that's not true. So I just think that 
you know, thank you for coming on and 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 clearing up some stuff, especially here in Australia as well, because we've we 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 kind of we're kind of the lucky country in a lot of ways. We, we live in the most beautiful environment in the world. It's abundant here. You've been here. You know, we're in we're in, we're based in Service Paradise right now. You've been here. You've seen how good it is here. It's great. It's great. But we but we're kind of not allowed to step out the country at the moment. You know, on mass without getting certain certain medical interventions, and I just it doesn't sit well with me. There's something that doesn't sit right with the narrative. There's something that doesn't sit right with how it all sits. So I just wanted. I'm just glad that we had this discussion. I really appreciate your time. Is there if there's any final message for like the people of Australia, the people of the UK that are listening to this podcast, which is where most of the audience are from at this moment in time? Is is it if there's any last message message you can give? What what would it be? I would give five quick points. This would be your elevator talk. This is what I've learned about the pandemic. I think this is bedrock. Uh, Number one, the virus is not spread by people without symptoms. Uh, Number two, we don't have to test people without symptoms because they can't spread the virus. Number three, that the immunity that someone has after they have the respiratory infection is robust, complete, and durable. They essentially can't get it again. So they don't need masks or lockdowns or vaccines. They're, they're done. For them, the pandemic is done. Number four, uh, the virus is treatable with early treatment, but it must be early at home. The hospital's too late. And then number five, the vaccines are just not sufficiently safe or effective enough to mandate or uh, uniformly apply across the population. They have to be individualized or and I think it, probably the better public health move is to withdraw them from the market and do a safety analysis. Peter, again, thank you so much for for uh, the way the way the way you just encapsulated that at the end is 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 perfect. It's perfect. It it speaks it speaks exactly to what I'm thinking. And guys, like I say, this is this is just me and Peter having a conversation, two adults having a conversation, sharing our opinions, trying trying to put it in the fairest context possible. Like I've said during this podcast vaccines are appropriate for some people and not appropriate for others and i just think it's right for people to have the fair choice of what they put in their body and i just think it's right as well that the doctors don't mass prescribe something which could potentially uh which 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 can't be which we cannot know the full implications of everything to everybody and that's all i want to say on it so uh thank you again peter for your time and guys Share this um, with with people that you think might want to hear it. And Peter, is there any websites or anywhere people can follow you on on social media? So you can uh, follow me on America Out Loud Talk Radio, the McCullough Report. America Out Loud Radio, the McCullough Report. I'm also the volunteer chief medical advisor for the Truth for Health Foundation. That's where you find uh, the home treatment guides, uh, the list of uh, treatments that are you know given in the hospital. It kind of gives you general education for COVID nineteen. I thought you did a great job. I'll just say, I'll give a plug. I finished a podcast with American podcaster Joe Rogan, and I received word. I think we actually hit the number one of, of, of his podcast that he's ever done. So um, that shows you as a proxy for the interest in COVID-19. I went 15 down, rounds with Joe Rogan, and I can tell you, I took a picture with him. I definitely need to hit the weight room after being with uh, Joe Rogan, but I had a great time. Had a great time with uh, you as well. I can see that you are on that caliber for your, for your audience. So thanks for having me. I'm, I'm on, I'm on the come up. I'm on the come up. Uh, um, I think number, number, number five, number five, number five in Australia is the, the highest I've got to so far. So we, 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 we're on, the, we're on the come up. I think this will be, um, 
I think this will be a number a number thirty in UK. So I think this will be um, what, one of the episodes that 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 is is wanted to be listened to by a lot of people because I. I it's it's not a narrative I usually go down. It's not something I want to constantly talk about on the podcast. But I just when I once I, once I listened to you on Joe's podcast and I saw what Joe did to you, I wanted to have you on here and I wanted to give you, give you an opportunity to talk. But I wanted to bring it more down to the layman's terms. Have a shorter episode, more concise. Um, obviously, I'm not as well versed as Joe on on the on on all the implications but i like to simplify stuff and break it down for people so i just want to give give the australian public and the british public a bit more of an insight into how things how things are going out um, from your opinion and yeah we've done that and i'm really really pleased that you came on and thank you again okay. and guys like subscribe share it with everyone that you know and and we'll speak to you soon don't forget to subscribe to the frankie lee podcast